Hello, I'm Johnny Ball and I'm talking about my career. I hope you've got plenty of time because I've been around for a long time. Thank you very much, and welcome to another Think of a Number. Ah, uh, Jock is jogging along. Jock, Jock, Jock is singing this song. Johnny Ball is the frenzied, fast-talking, comedic polymath who came to children's telly via the stand-up circuit. It's rubbish. I made it all up. He famously presented what were possibly the only make-learning-fun shows to actually deliver on that mandate. Think of a number, think again, think backwards, think this way. These programmes are all enshrined in a generation's most rose-tinted memories of being plonked in front of the TV after getting home from school. Hello and welcome to The Knit Show. Now, I'm not The Knit, this is The Knit, you see. Knit, which is really... Think backwards. But he was also a stalwart of the plays, both school and away, and was a fully ratified member of the BBC Light Entertainment Firmament, Dropping up on Blankety Blank, Swap Shop, and the All Star Record Breakers. Comedian turned television presenter, a man who's known hard times, hunger, poverty, audiences walking out of him. <laughs> well, let's forget last Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Ball! In spring 2016, Johnny sat down with TV Cream to have a chat about his life and times. So let's take you there now as we start by thinking backwards to Johnny Ball's early days. I left school at 16 with two O-levels through the crazy circumstances where I missed two major terms. From, from being a high flyer in the first year, I went, went down. But it was the making of me, because as I came out and got into the real world, I realised actually I was reasonably intelligent. And I just shot forward. It just, as though somebody had been holding me back in a catapult. I shot forward. And I went in the forces and just, oh, had a ball. I was working with boffins all the time. The idea of having a career in television was never, never any ever entertained, you know. And then suddenly it was, you know. After leaving the forces, Johnny worked as a redcoat and then set about making his way on the comedy circuit. Here he is, from a 1969 performance, entertaining the troops. Anyway, we came over by, um, <clears throat> uh, well, the rats, the rats were over, you know. I'd have preferred air fungus. Lingus, uh, <laughs> My material wasn't strong at all. My material was incredibly weak. It didn't matter. I, I, I just loved the audience, and they loved me, and it was great. And I went round, and I even conquered very rough clubs that people said, oh, everybody dies there, even the Queen died there, you know. Um, and I conquered them. had an outside toilet, honestly. I, I used to do the stags in, in Manchester and storm them by being clean, absolutely clean. And they used to stand, you know, because everybody else was effing and blinding and there was awful material, you know. Always eager to learn how stuff works, he became something of a gag technician. It, this is how outrageously pompous almost. What Ronnie Barker did, BC. I feel I could have done and would have done. Yes, we are BC. <laughs> oh, 
he and I both research comedy from the same sources. I used to know where his sketch ideas came from. Some of them are totally original, but not all. And, and you, you don't do that. What you do is you delve back and find ideas. God, I know he's done that for a while. Find a new twist on it, and suddenly it's new. It's brand new. The FX. <laughs> U-N-E-M Nine I-F-C-D-M V-F-N-10-E-M Like, uh, F-U-N-E-M, F-U-N-E-X it's, it's in a book written like that F-U-N-E-M, F-U-N-E-X, okay, M and X, I've seen it, in the book written in the 1920s. V-F-M. Johnny's encyclopedic knowledge of humour wasn't confined just to the joke books of yesteryear. He was also able to digest the latest routines of his comedy contemporaries. I once told Jimmy Tarbuck that I remembered a piece of material that Monkhouse had done. Hello, my name is Bob. That piece of material was a routine called Shana, and Johnny had done more than just remember it. He'd used it at the end of a spot in a working man's club in Anglesey, after the audience demanded an encore, and Johnny found himself clean out of gang. I did so well. They said, more, 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 and where I could go. I couldn't go home. I was staying the night and everything. So I went on and I did Shana. Didn't it work a dream? Bob was not amused, as Johnny found out when Monkhouse later demanded to speak to him. You see, you can't do that. I said, I never would have hidden the fact from you that I'd done it. And I was very aware that you'd never worked that place, and it was a one-off. I said, but I told Jimmy Tarbuck. So he's told you, hasn't he? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, this is shit, isn't he? I said, but honestly, there's no threat. There's no threat. I wouldn't ever do that. So we were, we were warned then. We never, I don't think we really met again. So I learned a lot from him. I used to move the best gags, the ones that really matter, the signpost gags of my act, I'd move forward and hit the audience with them, literally as I was bowling at them, you know. And I'd move forward and I'd back off and I'd come back and I'd walk forward with things. And, I, and it was his choreography. I'll see you again. You take something from everybody. What do you mean, is that a threat? <laughs> I put Frankie Howardisms into my act, and there were about five gags that were much better. So after a week, I'm doing it with an inflection, and now there's only three in the act inflections that are slightly Frankie Howard. You never notice them. Nobody ever notices them, but that's where they came from, and that's what it is. And that's how you build on things, and that's how you learn how a, a, a line works. You have to back off and give it time, you know. So it's it's lovely. There's no such thing as a Happy Middle Age comic. They all wish they could pack it in now. They've done it and they've, they've been there, they've done it all. And Johnny was no different. A lifetime of stag do's and touring the circuit was stretching out ahead. I could see that coming and I definitely didn't want to run the clubs for the rest of my life. Um, so if I couldn't make any television, then, then where else? Johnny and his agent kept plugging away. In 1965, he landed a spot on an episode of the radio variety show, Blackpool Night. Come where the stars are always bright. Be gone, dull care. It's Blackpool Night. Then, two years later, in 1967, 
Johnny wowed a BBC TV producer at an audition and landed what looked to be a plum gig on live television. He armed himself for the occasion by selecting his strongest material, which was a routine about a little boy and a party. Uh, when I did the Valdunican show, I did the second joke and the camera went. And it's live to 90 million viewers. And I switched to another camera, so I walked to the other camera. He spun his camera around and I'd walked out of my light. So now I'm in the dark working to 90 million viewers. And he'd never seen the act. He'd never seen the act. So when I did the little boy, I went down with the little boy crying. And the little boy said, I'm having a party. I'm just yelling and trifling for a bunch and all my friends are coming. There's a magic and I'm going to do tricks. And I said, well, why are you crying? He said, because I'm lost. And on the lost, I come up and the camera didn't come. It was absolutely a disaster. You can see a summer sky or touch your friend. As we get to 1972, our man is still struggling to make inroads into telly as a stand-up. And then along comes what looks to be the perfect platform from which to finally cement his place as a TV funny man. This program called The Comedians. Ladies and gentlemen, it's The Comedians! And I was down through my agent to be one of the stars. What happened with the comedians is the agency said, my artist is of a certain caliber. He gets this much a week. When somebody else on the show you're getting only gets this much a week, you can't put them level, otherwise it messes up all our, our prices. So you've got to give the star ones the tags or something, just a little more airtime, so that they come out on top. It's got to be this way. If anybody's good, they'll, they'll gravitate to the top, so don't worry about that. Um, there were two agencies, one in Leeds and one in Liverpool. Now I was the one in Liverpool. The one in Leeds had Charlie Williams. You know, he was always pinching things, always pinching, you know. And he thought there's something wrong with him. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's funny how they come to that conclusion, isn't it? Don't they? <laughs> and he was the star of the first series. I fell out with my agent and never knew I was in for it. Left him, and then Ken Goodwin took my place, and Ken Goodwin was the other star in the first series. Had I done it, I may never have ever got out of being a stunner coin. It was the luckiest thing I think ever happened. While a career as the next Tarbuck or Monkhouse remained just out of reach, spin back to 1967 and an altogether different Johnny Ball small screen persona was about to unfurl. I did uh, Ken Dodd's musical, I did uh, a radio good old days, and it was the producer of those who heard they were looking for somebody in children's television and asked him, and he said, well, I'm like the same, what are they looking for, comedians? So he thought, perhaps it's for Cracker Jack. So he suggested me, went for an interview, knew in five minutes I got the job. I was really bright-eyed and bushy-coated. I knew I got this job. And he said, you're going to be great in play school. And I said, what's, what's play school? He said, it's, it's on at 11 o'clock in the morning on BBC Two for under fives. And I'm off for the door. 
I said, no, I don't think so. But then after a few weeks, it was wonderful. Buongiorno. Hello. Oh. How do you like the place Play School has come to today? It's an island completely surrounded by water. This, by the way, is Johnny in action out on location for an episode of Play School from the 4th of June, 1968. When the weather is fine, then you'll know it's a sign for messing about on the river. Doing Play School, I couldn't do it because I couldn't come down to an under five level because I was a stand-up comic, you see, and I couldn't do it. Give me a song to sing, and I knew all the nursery rhymes. Boats and short boats and all sorts of craft and cruisers. But you asked me to do something with Humble or, you know, and I found it very difficult. In trying to work out how to talk to his audience, Johnny thought of his early days as a semi-pro comic. He'd supported himself back then by working at the Social Security in Liverpool. That role saw him get out and about, visiting people's homes. Going to a place, and there was a kid with nothing in the room. There's no heating, there's nothing, you know. Possibly this little glowing box in the corner. Johnny told the Play School production team about this. And they said, talk to that kid, you know, because I told them the story. So by keeping that kid in mind, Johnny finally managed to crack how to present Play School. You only did retakes where it's a technical problem, unless something had gone wrong. And you didn't really do retakes at all. Um, Bob Monkhouse had told me, if ever you do television, and they're recording it, if you do anything wrong, just walk off camera. Because they'll say, don't worry, we can edit that, and it won't show. They can't, and it will. So always walk off camera. So I did the first play school, and I got something wrong, and I walked off camera, and they said, ah, because ah, they didn't edit. They couldn't afford to edit, you know. And they said, where's he gone? Where's he gone? And the camera's still there. I'm gone. I've left. A box with rubber bands stretched round. Ping the bands for a guitar sound. During Johnny's time, there was a rotation of six male presenters, six female presenters, and six pianists. This was all part of the master plan of Play School executive producer Cynthia Felgate. She wanted that mix. She was very good at doing that, you see, at making sure that we were all different. There were six different fellas, six different girls, and even six different pianists, you know. Because some were pop oriented and some had come up in the classical school, you know. William Blazard. Play school pianist from 1964 to 1984. He's a wonderful pianist, and he'd done three world tours with Marlene Dietrich, and he, he was Joyce Grenfell's pianist. A tin of dried peas, a lid on top, give it a shake, maracas you've got. And they would say, um, it's raining in this, it's raining, can you give us some rain? He'd go, <laughs> and he would concoct a rain shower on piano just instantly. And here's a bit of Johnny from a Play School LP singing I'm the Man with Wellington Boots with music by the aforementioned William Blessard. Oh, I'm the man with Wellington boots that stomps and 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 stomps until he gets back home. And when he gets back home And when he gets back home He stomps and stomps and stomps and stomps until he finds his slippers. 
seashell was my favourite. She was always my favourite. She sells seashells on the seashore. Can you say that? Derek Griffiths was a great friend of mine. In a way, Derek and I were pals because we used play school as an expedient. It earned well and you could do anything else you wanted to do and they never minded. For instance, I was offered the comics part in pyjama tops with Fiona Richmond, which was porn. and went to Cynthia Felgate and said, could I take this? and still do play school. And she said, totally different this. No, no problem at all. So that's how good they were, you see. That's how wonderful they were. Play school offered not only freedom of employment, but sometimes a complete freedom of expression. You'd have a virtually no script. And another director used to ask me, just sit there and laugh. Talk to kids about laughing. So, do you, have a, do you like laughing? I love laughing. Some people laugh in a funny way. You know, and I had to sit there and make it up. But it became wonderful to do. And once you did it, they'd say, oh, do something like that. And let's do hiccups, you know, and washing your hair on television. I washed my hair on television and the letters flooded in. My child is now not scared of soap and getting their eyes wet because they saw Johnny Ball washing his hair, physically washing his hair on black school. So there were all these, this kind of thing that added the, the richness and made it all worthwhile. So I'd be in the clubs, you see, and you'd have a fellow at the bar with a pint in his hand and say, Hello, John, still doing that play at school? And I'd say, yeah, still watching it, are you? <laughs> Play school was a way to clock up presenting air miles, and lots of them. But the BBC Children's Department was also awash with other opportunities for Johnny to hone his writing skills. This is the theme to Cabbages and Kings, a sort of horrible histories of its day. It ran from 1972 to 1974 and starred Play School regulars Derek Griffiths and Julie Stevens alongside Johnny, who was also the show's resident gagsmith. It has to be said, it was the first ever time I'd written for television. All my effort went into writing. I didn't perform particularly well because I was exhausted and the jokes had to stand up. And Derek was totally inventive. And that's what you do. You write, give it to actors and they make more of it. You know, and, and, and I, I couldn't. toga in a twist. <laughs> Do you like it, toga? Looks like I've just got out of bed and taken the sheets with me. <laughs> now, the question is, why did the Romans invade and, and, and conquer Britain? Well, the Romans, oh, that's wrong. The Romans were always invading and uh, conquering <laughs> someone, you see. It was too expensive because it was all costume and we spent more than the costume budget just on the wigs before we got into a pair of pants um, and it, it just cost too much. Sire, we have a prisoner, a shepherd boy. He was spying on us, sire. Ah, oh, a shepherd spy. Pray, sir, mighty Caesar, I am only a shepherd boy. Boy? Have mercy on me, sir. Do not smite me. Don't worry, lad. I am a non-smoter. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it wasn't the easiest thing to do. That it was very taxing. Anyway, economically, the story is very funny. 
Although script writing could be a tough game, if you found the right buyer, there was money to be made. Because I was actually jobbing writing for LE. I wrote a couple of sketches for a Les Dawson show and for other shows. And they paid £35 a minute. But you'd write a three-minute sketch and the editors would cut it down to a minute and a half. And some of the jokes they cut out, they put in their own sketches. It was absolutely criminal. And you couldn't earn £100 a week as a job in writer. So Playway said, would you write for us? And I did a few. And they said, oh, shall we put it on a, a proper footing? I said, yes. Yeah. said, how much should we pay you? I said, well, Ellie pay £35 a minute, so why don't you pay me 30 I said... Okay, I think it's all right. First week out, 16 minutes. And I thought, wow. And I never went back to Ellie. Give me a P. P. L. L. A. Play Away was a programme aimed at a slightly older audience than Play School. It ran from 1971 until 1984 and was notable for its copious use of puns and I say, I say, I say jokes, many of which were written by Johnny Ball. But even a cosseted tea time review helmed by Brian Kant required some grit from the script writing department. Comedy needs an edge. It needs to be brutal or it needs to be slightly unkind. Excuse me, could you tell me how to hire a horse? Oh yeah, you can stand it on a table. Uh, Groucho Marx, a perfect example, you know. But I was writing for Brian Kant. And the directors used to hate him being aggressive. Oh, don't be aggressive, Brian. No, no. Could you possibly mend my car for me? Oh, it's not really odd enough for me, you see. Oh? I'm the odd... And I couldn't write for Brian because he was too light and he wasn't a comedian. Brian's a great friend. He's a lovely, lovely man. I'm the odd man. So, understand what I'm saying here? It was difficult for me to think of Brian Kant and write the sketch. Couldn't write it. So I would write the sketch by thinking of Groucho Marx or thinking of Ronnie Barker or thinking of Eric Morgan or Ken Dock or everybody. I used everybody, every kind of person. And I'd tell him without putting it in the script. It's Groucho Marx. He was a student of television and things like that and he understood and he loved all the comics. So when, when I said play at Groucho Marx, he understood what I meant. The Play Away and Play School years are just part of the story. It would take a jump into mathematics, via a failed leap over to ITV, to land Johnny foot-first into TV immortality. Derek Griffiths presented Don't Ask Me at Yorkshire Television with Magnus Pike, Miriam Stepard and David Bellamy. And his writer, the gag writer, was off. And he said, can I have Johnny Ball? So I got a job, 70 quid a week, writing the gags. And Derek said, you should be doing this job. But they wouldn't consider me. But I took from that, my experience, and I did think of a number. It was much better. But was it much better? And right from the start... That sound you can hear is children shuffling in their seats. It's the 31st of March, 1977, the recording of the first, the pilot, episode of Think of a Number. It was broadcast just two days later, the 2nd of April, 
because that's how they did things back in the 1970s. Let's listen to the opening link. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Think of a Number. Um, you there. Think of a number between one and ten. Seven. Seven! Correct! <laughs> in this programme, I'm Johnny Ball, certainly, and in this programme we hope to show you how to flex your flexigans, pop your pop-ups, and uh, even how to double your money. And I don't mean just fold your pound notes in half. Also, we'll be exploring the amazing world of numbers. What you can hear is that Johnny, supported ably behind the scenes by his play school producer, Cynthia Felgate, pretty much cracked a format for a new kind of children's show from that very first episode. Before we started the programme, we played a game of bingo with our studio audience. The title sequence is not the one you probably remember. It's not Johnny having some horseplay with the show's logo. It's an animation of numbers and calculators and such like. 22. Downing Street, number 10. However, that set, with those giant push-spring-open cupboard doors, is in place. And, more importantly, Johnny has already hit his stride with the perfect combination of facts, fun and brevity. Tomorrow's World was my inspiration, you know, because I used to watch the uh, early Tomorrow's Worlds, and I used to think, that is incredible. Five and two, fifty-two. Everyone a winner! Congratulations, because you've won the star prize. You've all won... A free walk to Penzance. <laughs> no, it was a swizz, of course it was, but it was just to show how fascinated people can be with numbers. You're all saying, it's another, it's another, it's another, it's another, it's BBC's own Tomorrow's World and Yorkshire Television's Don't Ask Me were the most obvious influences on Think of a Number, but Johnny's years on the stand-up comedy circuit gave him an innate understanding of the ebb and flow of performance, and the importance of always finding the quickest route to the punchline. All I do is get an idea and simplify it so that it's instantly understandable. As a stand-up comedian, you paint an image of a situation, you paint it quickly and clearly, it's absolutely clear, a man in a pub with a crocodile, and then you turn it on its head, and that's comedy. So it's the conciseness of it that's important. And then you need to take them to a pitch, a level. You know, you need to get them to a level. Then you need to give them a rest, and then bring them up to that level. It's like a scenic railway. You know, it's you take them up, let them down, take them up, let them down, take them, because you can't keep them at that level. And if you do try and keep them at that level, it'll wane, it'll wane, it'll wane, it'll wane, and go. So that's what I did, that simple template. But it was totally elastic. The first one could last three minutes, or it could last ten seconds, you know. Johnny stuck close to his template, building up the script the same way each time. He'd start from a basic structure. Headlines on one piece of A4. Then work out the nuggets of information at each point along the way. And I put a line where the facts are important. Then came the funny stuff. So you had to break it up and put a sketch in the middle or some kind of lightener in the middle. And that used to work very well. And you could do it ever so quickly. As you went on, you find... Uh, the whimsies, the visuals, the, the little kickers were harder to find, you know. Um, but it was, it was great exercise. There were two perennial format points in Think of a Number. First, there was the moment of wonder. 
the studio lights would dim and a massive prop or piece of technology would be wheeled in, or better yet, lowered down from the ceiling. This painting was done by a man called Vassarelli. And it's just squares, set out black squares on a white background and white squares on a black background. And of course, each episode would always round off with a trick. Let's have a clever trick. I've got nine boxes here forming a magic square. It's a magic square because if you count the numbers, every row and every diagonal add up to 15. Nine and five is 14 and one's 15. You've got a box here. I want you to put it on any box you like, and I think you're definitely going to finish on the black five. You try and finish somewhere else, okay? Choose anywhere you like to start. The five itself! Well, let's see what the instructions say. Take away the seven. Think of a number ran until 1984 and remained excellent for its entire tenure. That's if you don't count the title music, which for later series was reworked to terrible effect. During its seven-year reign, Johnny's Think Empire expanded with the arrival of spin-offs such as Think Backwards in 1981 and Think This Way in 1983. There was also the non-science series Think Again, which ran from 1981 to 1985 and featured Johnny musing about matters philosophical to great acclaim. This is Barry Took on the BBC's Points of View, broadcast on the 26th of February, 1982. Good evening. This feedback show was famous for allowing its presenter to keep cutting in on viewers' letters. Think again. Unsurprisingly, we've had dozens of letters of praise for it. Says Barry. Catherine Allen of Peterborough refers to... That marvel, Johnny Ball. Then Barry tells us... Mary Walsh of Highgate, London North 6 says... Hurrah for Johnny Ball's Think Again. And Barry finishes up this bit with the words... And Jack Lee of Newmarket wrote on February the 13th... Dear Barry, what a magnificent job Johnny Ball did about Great Britain in his programme Think Again. Intended for children, did you say? Never! I'm sure the older viewers enjoyed this as much as the children. Well, I've yet to see a critical word about the programme. That's good to hear. Not so Grange Hill. Really? Well, that's discussion for another day. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, Barry. If you have any comments on BBC television programmes, please write to Points of View, BBC Television Centre, London W12, 8QT. The Think suite of shows had a unifying character, which not only reflected their hosts' unique style, but also the fact that the programmes were made in Bristol rather than London. Just couldn't have done it at the television centre. When we did the programmes there, we lost half of our time in the morning until the crew realised everybody was going to be shifting stuff, moving stuff in and out quickly. Um, and at Bristol, they were regularly for it. Johnny and the Bristol crew got on particularly well. They, they were wonderful. They would do anything for us. We once had a Lamborghini and we couldn't get it through the scene dock doors because of the hoods over the wheels were, were out. So they said, can you put this till after lunch, John? I said, yeah, all right. After lunch, they'd only had the oxy settling well and they cut out 
two notches in the scene dot doors that would be forever cut out um, to get the thing in. Oh, they did all kinds of things. Including pushing health and safety regulations to their limits. Fire! There's a programme on fire and we had four practical fires in the studio, so they had to switch off all the fire alarms. So there were buckets of sand everywhere, you know. Buckets of water and sand, water and sand, water and sand everywhere. They said, that's the only thing we could do, we could do bloody fires. I mean, real fires. And when I talked about the priests who were burned at the stake... at the stake. Surely the most horrible death of all, because fire, out of control, is horrible. You know, I walked on a ramp behind the fire, so I'm actually in the fire as I'm talking, you see, and the camera's going around, and it's just wonderful. Fire of London. The fire raged for three days, fanned by an easterly wind. It destroyed 13,000 houses and put as many as 200,000 people out of a home. But very few lives were lost, and it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Over time, Johnny continued to pick up a claim for his shows, particularly Think Again, perhaps the jewel in the crown. That series did away with the studio audience in order to let the production team focus purely on the subject in hand. They were stronger programmes and they, they won world awards. But that became very daunting and it became difficult for me to write the scripts and keep the standards up because people would write, I'm going to be a nuclear physicist because of you and I go... Away from the pressures of his own shows, Johnny discovered he had found his place in the BBC star continuum, and programmes such as the all-star record breakers were a chance to let it all hang out with contemporaries. Here he is with Brian Kant and Cracker Jack's Stu Francis, critiquing Norris McWhirter's barista skills. What do you call this? Grounds for complaint! I'll have you know that that is the most expensive coffee in the world. All I can say is it wasn't percolated in the proper cup of coffee pot. Absolutely right. What I want is a proper cup of coffee made in the proper cup of coffee pot. We may be off our top, but we want a cup of coffee from a proper coffee pot. Tin coffee pots and iron coffee pots, they're no use to me or me. If I can't have a proper cup of coffee in a proper cup of coffee pot, I'll have a cup of tea. You were mates and, and met twice a year, you know. And yeah, oh, it was great. And it was really, really great fun. And we used to heckle each other and, and really, you know, uh, um, so we'd, we'd sit in the seats and rehearsals, we'd, we'd gag around, you know. But on the table, it was all, and it was, it was very good. It was all, yeah, part of the show. And everybody was welcomed in, you know, it's lovely. Well, let's meet a most sparkling cabal of celebrities. <laughs> And there were also opportunities to turn up in prime time. Here's Johnny occupying the top left seat, that's the one reserved for the middle-aged character actor or humorist, on the edition of Blankety Blank, broadcast on the 29th of November 1985. Have you got chest? <laughs> Fish! Bang balance! Artistically! OK, Johnny wasn't so good at matching answers with members of the public, but he was clearly having fun. Not so much on one of his other extracurricular activities. Mm. 
1980, Johnny co-presented the second series of The Great Egg Race. So The Great Egg Race, they'd have people making things, right? So you had to get beans from that city to this table or whatever. It wasn't a happy experience, mainly because Johnny didn't agree with how the director chose to film the teens working on their respective contraptions. He used to get them going and then he used to strike the crew for an hour. I said, you can't do that. Strike half the crew. Have two cameras left. He said, boy, you're missing the gold. You know, they didn't understand. They were awful. Johnny got on better with the boffins. And I was working with um, Heinz Wolf, who was very nice, and several other scientists, you know. And they realised I had no scientific training. But that rapport wasn't enough to convince him to stay. But I said to them, I said, you've got to be in control because the director is watching you down. You're better than this. He's giving you questions at the wrong time and he's doing all kinds of things that are really wagging. So I didn't want to do another one. I didn't want to do it. Another short-lived venture was this. Philomena. Philomena. Philomena ran for only one year, 1986, and saw Johnny introduce and provide voiceover for a series of lushly orchestrated Polish cartoons aimed at younger children. Philomena! Ah! Ah. Have you seen a cat about? Well, a kitten, really. White, with green eyes. Oh, she's called Philomena. Philomena was lovely. And now, you've got to remember that the Magic Roundabout had been the most enormous success. And Philomena came through, and they were Polish. And they were absolutely lovely. But when you read the scripts, they were almost adult scripts, so the cat gets drunk. So I had to rewrite the scripts. So I have to make, see, he's banged his head and his stars going round. After about eight, the cartoonist left and they put in another cartoonist and he was nowhere near as good. And I thought, oh, I'm on a long runner here. So I was gentling into it. And then it, it was rubbish. So we only did, I don't know, 12, 13. And let's round off this tour of Johnny's non-think 80s television activities with a look at three other shows that didn't quite hit the spot. What if, why should have, when did have, where would have, how could have, which was a who knows the answer? Who's gonna win? Who's got skill? Who's got style? Who can thrill and excite us by taking a chance? There are games of adventure, moving and balancing some, which is simply a push and a bouncing trap, and your pencils and your wits and they Johnny Ball Games First off, there's Johnny Ball Games. There were only ever two episodes made of this, one in 1980 and one a whole year later. The show was ostensibly a quiz in which teams battled it out over a series of tricky puzzles. But there was a lot of extraneous stuff going on as well. Most notoriously, a dance number. It was a great showcase for Johnny's versatility, but in a Bruce Forsyth's Big Night kind of way. Charlie Brooker on Screenwipe would later describe Johnny Ball Games as... 
possibly the most ill-advised format in TV history. Go away. Next up, Secrets Out, which was a kind of junior what's my line, in that it featured a panel trying to work out the strange hobbies of various guest punters. And here's the best kept secret of all, it's Johnny Ball! Thank you and welcome to another edition of Secrets Out. Come here, camera two, because it's a panel game involving all kinds of hobbies. And in actual fact, this programme is getting in the way of my hobby because I wasn't here, I'd be at home collecting dust. The show received a mixed review on a 1985 episode of Take Two, which was actually a kind of junior points of view, but not actually junior points of view. Over to you, Josephine Buchan. Nicola De Luca, age 13, has this to say about Secrets Out. I like Johnny Ball as the presenter, but I don't like the idea of having the same panel every week. It's very interesting to see what different people do in their spare time, and I also like the idea of famous personalities appearing on the programme. But I don't think it has the right atmosphere for a programme which I regard as a quiz programme, as it only has one team. And finally, Fun and Games a Yorkshire television show about puzzles and brain teasers, which Johnny presented for just one year in 1987. Here's what he has to say about it. It was atrocious. It was so awful. I lent them two foot of mass books to get the ideas from. I lent them, got nothing for that. I had to say to an expert, Celia Hoyles, so how does that work, Celia? when all the things they gave me, I'd done in my programmes. So I said, you're making me look an idiot. So we were at loggerheads from the first programme, you see, and we did the series, right? And I, I just hated it. I just, oh, I, it was awful. So I gave them all the material, and I was looking like a bloody idiot. The first programme got the highest viewing figures of anything outside the soaps for the entire week. And they threw a party because they thought we've got a winner. I said, at the end of the series, you won't be in the top 20. They were about 40th. It went. Now, had that been a good series, I'd have been made in adult television. And they were awful. And uh, they asked me to do the following year. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. By the late 1980s, changes were afoot within the BBC Children's Department. Someone has got to win the Olympic gold medals. Someone has got to... What you're hearing comes from the 3rd of April, 1987. It's the final link from the final episode of the final Think-branded show. Think it, do it. It was a series all about employment. But after this, it was Johnny who was left looking for a job. All these jobs have got to go to your generation. All the jobs around you will be thrown in the air and land in somebody else's lap. Somebody new. I do hope it's you. And it will be if you don't just think it, you do it. Do it. Do it. Oh, go on, get on with it. Bye. The following year, Johnny turned up on a new children's BBC science show called Know How, but it was the beginning of the end. Johnny not only had to share screen time with younger presenters, Ander Cares and Mark Salter, but there was also a crazy comedy drama segment called Hyperspace Hotel to fit in as well. 
What's the surprise you've got for me? What's that? Oh, that, that's Neville. Neville? Yeah, yes, uh, he's one of our guests. Was Johnny getting too old for kids' TV? And if so, what were his options? There's a glass ceiling between children and adults. Only Noel Edmonds really broke through it, and um, Phillips got through it. Yeah, they're the only two who've really broken through it. But I, I didn't, but I always thought I would. Uh, my relationship with children was shaken. So I walked away from the BBC, suddenly out on my own. one-man whirlwind. Johnny Ball reveals all on Children's ITV, making understanding easy and fun, trying out clever inventions and wild experiments for everyone who's ever wondered about anything. <laughs> Who wants my whirlwind? Wednesdays at 10 to 5 on Children's ITV. In 1989, Johnny finally made the big move over to ITV, but unsurprisingly not to Yorkshire, home of Don't Ask Me and Fun and Games. I went to Central Television. What I didn't realise is Central Television had about three spots in ITV Children's. Had I gone to Southern, I could have had as many programmes as I wanted. I could have literally had definitely uh, 26 programmes a year. I could have had six months and I didn't and I went to Central because my agent had made that connection and it was wrong. And so they gave me seven programmes and I said, shall we do another seven in six months? I said, no, there's only seven in a year. So it was only seven, and then seven, and then seven. And I couldn't get any more, you know. So I got very frustrated with that. Johnny stuck it out at Central for five series, taking him up to 1994. So it can't have been all bad. They weren't bad. They, they really weren't bad. They were very good, you know. We did a programme where I wanted to disappear through the, the hole in the floor. So the whole programme was done on the false floor. And they did that for us, you know. And Clive Doig came with us, and Clive was an excellent director, and he was in the BBC. They were okay. We didn't have a reduction in uh, quality. Um, it was sometimes difficult to get odd things done, uh, like they didn't have a scene docker could go and find old stuff from and things like that. But generally speaking, they were very good. During the 1990s, we saw less and less of Johnny on our TV screens, but he was keeping busy. His explaining skills were being put to use in a range of corporate videos. For the Department of Trade and Industry, he did... Eight half hours on materials technology. And then I did the, the video for Tornet's nuclear power station with an expert, but made it palatable. And there was more, lots more. National thing for British Gas, national thing for Rover Cars, stuff for Rolls-Royce. Um, worked for six years with National Grid. Six years. For the time I worked, I was getting ever so well paid. In 2000, I did a show in the Dome for the year. I sold every seat, every every place, you know, in, in, in the year. Where, Where is, is Johnny Ball? 
In 2003, Johnny Ball unexpectedly bounced back onto our screens on Channel 5's The Terry and Gabby Show. His segment saw him having to answer viewers' questions about everything and anything. Three questions every single day, 45 minutes to get the answer. This daytime magazine programme had a rapid turnaround and Johnny faced a lot of incoming fire. Simon in Wallington wants to know, why do bottles of mineral water have a sell-by date when the water has been in the ground for thousands of years, please, Johnny? Helen in Turkey says, the Queen has just celebrated a golden year for 50 years on the throne, but what Helen wants to know is what jewel is to celebrate 30 years. She's convinced it's diamonds. Mike disagrees. Why does your voice go squeaky when you inhale helium? Why is a man who invests all your money called a broker? How do bees actually make honey? It was not an easy task, particularly because the show's producers refused to give him much time to prepare, even for what was designated that day's big question. I said, if the big question you give me the day before, I can have stuff out of museums, out of the science museum, actually in a new studio. I can have experts. I can have all kinds of things. If you give me the day before, he said, no, that's the way it is. You will get those live. You will not know. You will not know. So when I explained how does a nuclear power station work, I had to do it with a blackboard and chalk. Nuclear power generation is so incredibly safe, and it is splitting atoms. What you've got is this container with the, your, your, your atoms. There's the only way I could do it. I had to draw the blackboard and chalk. There's a gag, there's not a gag in the mile here. The nuclear reactor, they actually spit into smaller balls, and they still go rattling about. And each one knocks onto the others, and they, this is the chain reaction. But you it can just go crazy so i called a meeting at which much was discussed but nothing was resolved johnny's woes on the terry and gabby show were symptomatic of a series under pressure terry was just non-committal and he said oh my old listeners all tune in so we'll get the figures in. or if they did they switched off again johnny was dropped from the show replaced by danny baker but the series wrapped up for good on the 26th of March 2004, just nine months after it started. It was terrible, you know, terrible. So what good did it do any of us? Absolutely nothing. You know. In recent years, Johnny hasn't been a stranger to telly. You'll still find him popping up as a guest here and there, particularly on daytime and early evening shows, which trade in the kind of nostalgia that revels in bringing back TV talents of our formative years. Johnny's done Antiques Road Trip, The TV That Made Me, and My Life on a Plate. Such outings are an opportunity for him to make sure his presenting muscle is still working. When I do the televisions now, I feel I can relax, and I feel because I've had so much experience, I'm quite a good performer on these anti-road trips and things like that, because I always get a gag in somewhere. So when I did Life in a Plate, the pub had changed where we went to, and, and, and I said, I'd love to just talk about the pub. So we went in, I sat on the stool, I said, a pint of that one, because I couldn't say the name. Uh, oh, oh, I like that one, yeah, this, this end one. And I sat down and I said to camera, I said, we would walk miles. This pub is three and a half miles from where my house was, and we would walk here. And this was one of the nicest ones. I don't know what I said, but I did that, and I said, oh, thank you for letting me do that. You know, that's lovely, so here's to pubs. So here's to pubs. And here's to Johnny Ball. His career has spanned more than 50 years, but in these last 50 minutes, what have we learned? We know Johnny perfected a formula made up of K 
careful reasoning, sight gags and daft puns that allowed him to talk about pretty much any subject and make it entertaining. But that alone doesn't account for how he became a generation's chief explainer. Perhaps it comes down to this. Perhaps Johnny never actually realised that his job was to make learning fun. Because for him, it already was. It's all topology. What's the point of topology? I tell you, of all branches of mathematics, topology is the one that's most fun. Give me my waistcoat. The formation of the police force, zip fastenings, the workings of the human skull, photography, chairs and topology. These were all subjects that he found hugely entertaining. So why shouldn't we? In the end, Johnny's greatest skill is that when he talks, he is able to communicate a tremendous and unquenchable enthusiasm directly to us. That sounds simple, but of course it's not. It takes a rare and personable talent to make eager minds think and think again. Yes, of course. I had to pop round so he'd explain what it's like to run an organisation like ours. After all, Jonathan Ball Enterprises is the largest organisation of its kind in the world. I'll be having a high old time seeing how amusement park technology works. Right, and a bit of ham sandwich goes in there. Immediately it's in the mouth. It gets chewed, rolled into balls and moistened with saliva. But the Romans left anyway! If you know anything about the mathematics of billiards and snooker, you can understand how the ball bounces off the cushions. Ah, blink More jet. Bonk. More jet. Bonk. Boom. More jet. Donk. Lug. Bonk. Donk. Blinko? Did you understand all that? What a handsome chap. It's a trick, of course. All the tricks on this programme are tricks. If you'd like to know how to do that trick or anything else about the programme, drop us a line. Johnny Ball, Think of a Number, BBC Television, London W1A1AA.